book of Ephesians is unique. Paul wrote this letter to the church at Ephesus and three or four different times, um, depending on how you want to count them, they actually as many as five times, he either voices a prayer acknowledges what he has been praying or voices a doxology, a a statement of gratitude and thanks and praise to God uh, about things that God has done to answer prayer. And it is a continual reminder throughout the letter that Paul understands, sees, and has the insight to grasp how important it is for the people of God to pray. For us to commit our lives to pray, to pray just expressing our gratitude to God, to pray for one another, to pray for our world in the context of our ministry and our outreach, how important it is to voice ourselves to the God who has both created us and then through his love recreated us into the people he wants us to be. What convicts me, particularly in the passage we look at today in Ephesians chapter 1, is sometimes what a difference there is in my prayer list and the Apostles Paul's prayer list. And we're gonna see some of that difference today and I'm gonna challenge you as you're taking notes and as you're looking at it to think in terms of, okay, this is what I pray, which is all good. So let me just say that right up front. The fact that you're praying is good in and of itself versus what the Apostle Paul was praying, which could challenge us, I know it challenges me in this passage of scripture, to take prayer, in a sense, to a new level. To gain the insight and the understanding that can only come from the dwelling and the work of the Holy Spirit living in our lives and guiding us in that prayer. In fact, as Paul wrote to the church at Rome, he emphasized the importance of prayer and he acknowledged to the church at Rome, there would be times when you would be praying and you would not know exactly which words to pray. And he reaffirms them in their prayer and acknowledges in those moments, the Holy Spirit, that presence of God that lives in us would actually pray on our behalf would actually pray in a fashion that was so deep, it was direct communication to God because we might not know exactly how to pray. And oftentimes we don't know exactly how to pray. And we can take comfort from that. And probably the most quoted prayer of Jesus, even though there are many prayers of Jesus and uh, that are highly valuable, but in the most quoted prayer of Jesus, he acknowledged that the pathway set in front of him, he wasn't real sure he wanted to take, but if that was the pathway that would accomplish the will of the Father, he would, and he prayed out of that sense of not necessarily knowing exactly what to pray, whatever your will is, that's what I'll submit to. Your will be done. And of course, Jesus had taught the disciples to pray that way. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so let's talk about prayer for a few minutes this morning. Let's go to Ephesians chapter one. Let's start up in verse 15. And let's look at this prayer of the apostle Paul's. And we're gonna actually break it down and look at some of the different elements of it. So let me just summarize real quickly. In this particular comment, in this particular prayer, where Paul is saying, these are the things I've already prayed. He's writing to the church and said, these are the things that I regularly pray for. These are the things that you can have confidence I am asking God 
to do in your life. And there's thankfulness. There's the issue of depth that comes with insight and having God work in our hearts and lives. There's the issue of praying for their purpose, their sense of calling and direction and fulfillment, and their authority. He is praying for the authority that they have in Christ to be exercised and lived out in their lives. And so as he prays for a congregation, much as the, of the way that we pray for the congregation and we pray for one another, he's grateful. He wants them to grow and understand more. He wants them to grasp that God has a purpose, God has a calling, God has a reason and a direction he wants us to go, and that in that direction that God has for us, he has given us authority to effectively go there and do what he wants us to do. And this is a significant prayer. It starts in verse 15. In fact, let me read it through. It's a little complex, but then we'll break, come back and break it down. This is why, so Ephesians chapter one, verse 15. This is why, since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I never stop giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength. He exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every ruler, and authority, power, and dominion, and every title given, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Now let's break it down. The first part's simple, it's easy to follow. He is thankful for them. And when we pray, when I incorporate this outline into my prayer list, as I am praying, I need to remember and I need to exercise and always be aggressively thankful for the people in my life. He simply says he, he heard about, he was at Ephesus for three years, planted that church, established that church, left leadership in place. He is away now, he's gone, and he has heard, he's heard rumors about the church. But unlike what many of us have experienced in life, those rumors are positive rumors. I have heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus. I have heard about your love for all the saints. And knowing about your faith and knowing about your love causes me to be thankful every time I remember you in my prayers. And that's a great verse. Verse 16 is one of several verses throughout all of Paul's letter where he simply tells us, when I'm praying for you, I'm grateful for you. In this case, specifically because of their faith. They know Jesus. They have a relationship with Jesus. They are the definition of the word believer. They are the definition of the word Christian, people who follow Christ. 
They are that definition of a church in everything that is right about the active and living and unimaginable blessing of being in relationship with God. They have faith. They've been forgiven. And they're now living that life together. And as they live that life together, their love is a topic of conversation. And so Paul hears about their faith. Paul hears about their love for one another. Just be thankful. I like the way Paul puts it at the top of all of his statements. I like the way every one of his letters, at some point, typically in the first chapter, there is a statement to that church. When I think about you, I pray for you. When I think about you and I pray for you, I remember you with gratitude. It's a huge balm for the woundedness that often happens in relationships. And the church is not exempt from that. I think sometimes when we first become believers, I know I kind of had this image and impression in my mind, and I think sometimes today, I still sometimes think it's the church. It should be perfect. Everybody should like one another. Everybody should get along. Everybody should leave every Sunday happy. And to a very real extent, many of you know this, but if you're a guest, you may be hearing this for the first time, that's our goal. We want to be out of here and we want to be out of here happy and encouraged and strengthened. Because we had a long week ahead of us. And just about everything in the world is going to come against us and is going to attempt to rob us of that joy, rob us of that happiness, rob us of that encouragement. And so we want this moment to be challenging, but challenging in an encouraging way. Honest and authentic, we admit right off the top, we're sinners And we are dealing with that, and that's where the faith comes in. We are people of faith. We have sought God's forgiveness because we couldn't do it. And now we love one another, even in our imperfections. But being grateful for one another, it helps in human relationships. It helps in every relationship. Struggling in your marriage, one of the very first things I would encourage you to do is start praying regularly for your spouse and acknowledge how thankful you are for them. It's, it's really hard to start listing the things you're grateful for and stay mad. And the same thing's true in church. You have a struggle, something doesn't go exactly right, something's not happening exactly the way you want it to, start thinking about and praying about the things that are right and the things that are going right. It's not some trick in psychology or pop psychology or, or live your best moment today. I mean, it's not, it's not some kind of just self-help idea. It is the bedrock of the Christian experience. God has taken care of everything. We honestly, no matter how bad life is, don't have a right to be ungrateful. Because life can get very bad. Life can get very difficult But always, we have a hope because we know Jesus. Always, we have the knowledge that God is with us in this moment. In every moment, in my worst possible days, in my worst possible seasons of life, in the times where struggle was the heaviest, I could find something to be thankful for. And specifically, thankful for our church. Start listing on your prayer list the things that you're thankful for and the things you're thankful for being a part of this place and this people. 
In verse 17, he continues and he talks about the depth. He wants them to have depth. He wants them to have knowledge. He wants them to have illumination, enlightenment, understanding of what God's doing. So he prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. It is absolutely essential in the Christian life to study, to understand, and to do everything we can to intellectually, even academically, understand the greatness of God and who God is and the things about him. Those who have been members for a while know I was not an academic to begin with. A lot of things changed on April 21st, 1979 when I met Jesus. My finances changed because they weren't mine anymore. I realized they were God's and I started attempting to live the way he wanted me to. It doesn't mean suddenly I became wealthy, struggled most of my life financially because I chose to be in an area, be in a career that typically doesn't make you wealthy. But God always provided. I, I struggled up until that point academically. I didn't even like to study. My favorite part of school was recess. I literally went to school in the morning looking forward to going out on the playground with the kids. I, I had great times on the playground. I convinced the girls in my third grade class that I would be their pet kitten and they would pack lunches and bring it to me on the playground. It's almost like a church potluck at school. There's always these struggles. And, and academically, it was a struggle. But almost immediately, I can show you books in my library that I was given the first year I became a follower of Christ. And I started studying. I started reading. I started attending conferences. I changed up my whole educational plan. For the first time ever, I was looking forward to going to school. My biggest disappointment about college was they don't have recess. But you can actually schedule your classes the way you want, which worked out really well. I never really thought I would ever go to graduate school, but by the time I, I, God had changed my life in college and those changes were taking place, I actually looked forward to and I wanted to go to graduate school. I wanted to go to seminary. I wanted to get further education. All of that is absolutely important. Christianity is, I think you can say in a very real way, an academic and an intellectual position of faith but it's never enough and Paul's praying that they would know praying that they would have this knowledge of Christ and they would understand even complex and difficult things but he's praying for more than that he's praying for illumination he's praying that God's spirit the Holy Spirit would move in their heart and would touch them and help them see help them understand literally he prayed that their eyes would be opened and in that process they would know what only God can say to us you've had that moment when you're reading the Bible or maybe you're reading some other work, academic, devotional, or you could even be watching a movie, and suddenly everything makes sense. Suddenly there is this sense of, of presence, and it makes sense, and you understand. Many of you have heard me say that before I became a Christian, I was watching the movie Ben-Hur, which was, the book was written 
to help people understand who Jesus is. And in the middle of that movie, in a scene where Jesus reaches down and gives a prisoner a cup of water, a simple cup of water, and then later in a scene, all of this is fictitious. All of this didn't really happen. But in a later scene, Jesus is on the way to the cross, and that same prisoner brings a cup of water and gives it to Jesus. And in that moment, as simple as it is, I can't explain it academically, but in that moment, something said something inside of me. Something spoke to my heart and my mind and said, this is Jesus. And I said, I want to meet him. And eight days later, I would bow on the floor of an apartment and say, dear Lord Jesus, come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Take me with you to heaven. And he's kept his promise. All except for the last, but I'm looking forward to that one too. So that one hasn't happened yet. But until then, we keep studying and we keep praying and we keep asking God to reveal. And it doesn't have to make sense. I'm not asking anyone in this room or anybody on live stream, I'm not asking you to understand why in that moment the reality of Jesus was so clear to me. I'm not asking you to understand that because in that moment, God's spirit was speaking to me. He was convicting me. He was convincing me and drawing me into him. We pray for our depth. We pray for the people around us that they would understand and have that knowledge. Verses 18 and 19, we're praying that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened and opened so that they would know four different things. Their calling, the resource for that calling, the power for that calling, and the strength. That they would know and understand, he says in verse 18, the hope of his calling. Being drawn into Jesus and into a relationship with Jesus brings hope. It's, it's not fear. And it's, and it's not um, this sense of, oh, I'm going to restrict my life so much because of the moral requirements. When you meet Jesus, when you know he's in your life, when you know he's forgiven you, when you know that he's there and he's going to be with you, the moral restraints are real because we want to live a life that reflects the holiness of God, but they're not a burden because we just have been let go of the burden. Satan, Satan held us in captivity. Sin held us in captivity. For the first time after you meet Jesus, you actually know what it is to be liberated and have that relationship. It's the hope of his calling in our lives and the wealth of his glorious inheritance that everything God has, he's willing to share with us. We're a part of it. It's been a part of his plan from the very beginning. In the very beginning with Adam and Eve, God comes to them and says, look, everything I've created is yours. Manage it. Take care of it. Work over it. And even after Adam and Eve sin, and that sin becomes an inherited part of our lives and we make decisions to sin, God continues to say, everything I've got is yours. I want you to steward it. I want you to manage it. It's, your, it's my resources, but I'm letting you guide and use and effectively use those resources. He's trusting us. Because of our relationship with him, we are now a part of that glorious inheritance. So when we struggle, we know there's resource. We know there's help. We know there's power that we might understand. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, opened, 
so that you would understand in verse 19 the immeasurable greatness of his power. The immeasurable greatness of his power. You know, power is an interesting thing. We try so much to get it. And then regardless of how hard we try to get it, it's constantly deteriorating. I mean, it's like, you know, we've got too many scientists to use an analogy out of science. Let me just simply say power is constantly deteriorating. You can't hold on to it. You can't keep it. You can't preserve it. But Paul's not telling us to grab it or to snatch it or to, to build it or, or to hold on to it. He's telling us to tap into the immeasurable greatness of God's power. There are so many things in my life I can't do. I simply can't do them. I am not wired that way. I, I was never wired. I've already confessed that. I became a scholar in a certain sense. I hesitate to use that word because I met Jesus and it drastically changed the calling on my life. I wanted to know him. I, I wanted to be able to teach other people in a way and in a fashion that anyone from any background could understand what the scripture teaches. I invested myself in that, but I am not naturally that way. I'm just not designed that way. I am designed for recess. I like recess. I look forward to letting you go in a few minutes so we can just talk and visit together. But it was never about my power. It was never about my discipline on how to study. It was about God working his power through me. And his power is beyond measure. It's beyond, it's beyond weighing. It's beyond quantifying in some way. It's beyond us. And yet that's the power that we are stewards over and we have. And the mighty working of his strength in the last part of that particular part of his prayer. That this purpose is accomplished by God's mighty working of his strength. We're in the middle of a huge relocation project. It's a 20 year project that's been on the heart of this church longer than 20 years. Nearly 30 years ago, they started studying the trends and the growth patterns and the things that would happen and the nature of, of being landlocked and captured here on this property and, and began looking to a vision that many of us inherited. It wasn't our idea, it wasn't our thought process. We inherited it, but now we see it. Every day, I am in meetings and consultations and conversations about doing something that I honestly don't know if I can do it. This is being honest, I don't wanna discourage anybody, but it's bigger than me. I, I, it's never been a dream of mine to build a building. It's never been a dream of mine to establish a campus someplace. I've always been called by God and have enjoyed God working through me to reestablish and to turn around and to bring churches out of difficulty into a thriving, successful ministry that touches people. But to do that in this context, it has become clear over my tenure and the vision of those who preceded me has become clear that the best way to do that is to have a new tool. I can't do it. The truth is, we can't do it. But we're not trying to do it. I have to remind myself sometimes at the end of the day when I'm laying in bed at night thinking and praying, it's not about me, it's not about my capability, it's not about your capability. I am thankful the only reason this project is going to be successful apart from God's presence is because we have really super qualified and just amazing leaders in our 
church that are guiding that process. But it'll be done. And two summers from now, at the end, at the end, in the middle of the summer, June of 2025, we'll be in a new campus, in a new facility, able to do things we haven't been able to do here, able to make so many other things take place, and looking at a great future that will not just be ours, but it'll be those who come behind us, the same way many of us came behind those who had the original vision, there will be those who come behind us, and they will take that vision to the next level. It'll happen because of this phrase in verse 19, the mighty working of his strength. I don't say that to say, oh, it's just so hard, it's going to be difficult. That is true. But you know, I've been at this long enough that I can say I don't really want to waste a lot of time being a part of something that God's not doing. I am looking forward to June of 2025 and standing there on the day we open, cut ribbons, whatever service type thing that happens, I am looking forward to saying, without God, we couldn't have done this. I don't want to be a part of something we can do. I want to be a part of something only God can do. And that's what he's called us to do here. The last one is the authority. He's thankful He's praying for them out of gratitude. He's wanting them to grow deep and go further. He's wanting them to understand the purpose God has for them. And then he just wants them to understand the authority they have. He exercised this power in Christ in verse 20 by raising him from the dead and seating him at the right hand in the heavens. Jesus has been resurrected, he is alive, and not just resurrected, not just coming back to life, he is now today enthroned in heaven. He's seated at that right hand. And he goes on to a description of that, far above every ruler and every authority, every power, every dominion, every title, Jesus is beyond all of this, and not only in this moment, but also in the one to come. And he has subjected everything under his feet and appointed him as head over everything in the church, which is his body, the, full, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. Jesus' resurrection, enthronement, creates for us an authority. Jesus told us to go in that authority. He asked us to make disciples. He asked us to help people find a life-changing relationship with Jesus. He asked us, actually, quite honestly, he told us. He didn't really give us much of an option to go and do that. But before he told us to go, he said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. In Matthew chapter 28. And now Paul's reminding this church in Ephesus You're not on your own. The authority is in Jesus. The authority is in God. And he's sending us. It's okay that we can't do it. It's okay that we don't have enough power. We don't have enough insight. We don't have enough authority. We don't have enough resources. It's okay. Because we were never designed to do this on our own. In fact, without Jesus, we are a headless corpse. That's what he says. Jesus is the one who is the head of the church. And the church is his body, the fullness of the one who fills all things in every way. We, we're just a corpse. I mean, I don't have to explain that graphically, do I? You all understand that. If the head's gone, the body's gone. 
the head of this church is not the pastoral team, it is not the deacons, it's not the Bible study teachers. The head of this church is none other than Jesus Christ. And he is resurrected, he is alive, and he is enthroned in heaven, and he's living that authority out through us. And yes, there are Christians all over the world, and increasingly so in Western civilization, that are being persecuted and challenged in this area. But never forget, the authority is not ours. The power is not ours. It's Jesus's. And as long as we're doing what Jesus wants us to do, we'll be successful. So let's just pray again. Thy will be done.